Welcome to episode 458 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have a grand conversation with American theatrical treasure, actor, playwright, director, Austin Pendleton. And we talk with Austin about his early days acting with people like Orson Welles and uh, also director Mike Nichols. We talk about the Steppenwolf Theater, about his play Orson's Shadow, Ego, Fiddler on the Roof, and uh, responding to bad reviews, Laurence Olivier, teaching acting, teaching directing, Sticking with it, it being your art. A grand conversation with Austin Pendleton. We have an EWSA titled Theater Guru, and we share a tribute to highly regarded theatrical critic Terry Teachout by our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavise. And we have an EW poem called Fluttering About. And of course, all of this will be imbued, infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to be with you. Let's get to it. Episode 458 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Theater Guru. What can you say about theater on and off Broadway? You can say a lot of things. I'm going to say Austin Pendleton. Catch 22, The Shadow of Orson Welles. 
Fiddler on the Roof, Elizabeth Taylor, H.B. Studio, The New School, Warren, Ohio, To the Steppenwolf, The Public, Manhattan, Stuttering on the Big Screen, All These Real Dreams Made into a Real Life, Family and Friends Abound. They like having this gray-haired guru around. I remember watching the film Catch-22 when I was a younger man. The farce, the absurdity of war were so clearly and humorously communicated in it. He was the oddly affectionate son-in-law of the big curmudgeon of a general, who had the young wife with a body that made 20-year-old men tremble and stumble in heat. Or the Tony-nominated direction of Ms. Taylor and Templeton as Little Foxes. And two collaborations acting on stage with the great Meryl Streep. And yet, you might catch him in the theater restroom, freshening up at the sink and airing out his feet. This thespian is a real person who enjoys talking with just about everyone he might meet. What is art? An artist who has true heart and soul and grit and love of the new and the old, not in it to win it or to be perpetually bought and sold, big fame and fortune or bitter obstinance of ego, learn less than a verb for an essence of poignant moments strung together so bold. Austin Pendleton, I will mention again, he is an artist who is a master of synthesis, the real and pretend. It was a miracle. It was a miracle. Wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles, God took a Daniel once again, stood by his side and miracle of miracles, walked him through the lion's den. Wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles, I was afraid that God would frown, but like he did so long ago in Jericho, God just made a wall fall down. When Moses softened Pharaoh's heart, that was a miracle When God made the waters of the Red Sea part That was a miracle too But of all God's miracles, large and small The most miraculous one of all Is that out of a worthless lump of clay God has made a man today Wonder of wonders Miracle of miracles, God took a tailor by the hand, turned him around, and miracle of miracles led him to the promised land. When David slew Goliath, yes, that was a miracle. When God gave us manna in the wilderness, that was a miracle too. But of all God's miracles, large and small, the most miraculous one of all is the one I thought could never be. 
Austin Pendleton, is that you? Yes, this is he. <laughs> How are you, sir? This is Lawrence Pugliese from Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Yes, yes, yes. I'm good. How are you? Pretty good on this uh, rainy day. Are Are you in Scranton? Just outside, yeah, just up in the mountains. Uh, that oh, you... how, how beautiful. Yeah, I love it there. And, yeah. oh, really, thank you. Yeah, and uh, you're in uh, Manhattan? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's nice to have you on the show again. I, this is, I think, our third conversation. and I, I really, Yeah, right, yeah. I, yes, right, yeah. And, uh, you know, um, I'm honored. Let me share with the people who don't know uh, who you are a little bit. Uh, Austin mm-hmm. Pendleton is an actor, a playwright, Tony Award-nominated theater director, a professor, a recipient of Drama Desk and Obie Awards, and uh, many would say uh, a true treasure to American theater. Again, I'm honored to have you on the show again, sir. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, how, how have things been going? Oh, good. I was just in a play that I got pulled into at the last minute called this beautiful future and it was a showcase but it went extremely well and got a really good review in the times and all that stuff so it's very likely that it's going to be done again in a few months because of all that and and i was pulled i was pulled into it right toward the end of the rehearsal period the guy who was playing the part had to withdraw so um um the, the director whom I know and had worked with a few months ago called me and said, would you step in? I thought, I read it. I thought, great, but I, they, I can't learn it. I don't know how to learn this. It's it's very oddly written, you know. But he said, oh, come on, we'll all help you. And so we did it. And it was this big hit. What's it called? This Beautiful Future. This Beautiful Future. I didn't catch it the first time. And... Um, it's written by an Australian woman who who lives in London, and um, the uh, the play has been done in London, first of all successfully, and then I guess they tried something else with it, it didn't work as well. But the first time they did it, it was a hit, you know. And um, then, but it's never it had never been done in the United States until we did it. And and uh, what's the gist, I guess, like, of it? Well, it goes. Back and forth. It's set in the south of France in World War II, when the Nazis are still occupying France, but they've been, but but now they've kind of lost and they're um, in a retreat. And there's this very sweet young guy who's who's in the German army, the Nazi army, who who um, and and a French girl in the town falls in love with him. And so they have scenes that go all through the play. Those alternate with scenes between me and a woman a little a little bit younger than I am, who um, and we we behind plexiglass we 
we sing songs <laughs> we, in between the scenes. Uh, I sang a Bruce Springsteen, Bruce Springsteen song at one point, and we sang a couple of other established songs that are in the script, you know. And it, it just goes back and forth between the scenes between the girl and the boy, as it were, and us. And and how do you connect to the girl and the boy? You and singing? well, there's all kinds of ways of interpreting that, and and people, different people who saw it, they if they if they had lived, we would be them older, or um, we were commentators on them, or if their parents had lived, we would have been the parents, or of, of either one of them, um, or. Um, um, or that we're just commentators. So so people could take about us whatever they wanted. You weren't directed to uh embrace one of those? You just No, we no, it, it didn't if you're playing it it doesn't matter because you're singing songs basically. Mm-hmm. And then at the end we come out from behind the plexiglass and we embrace the people, and then we have a long dialogue back and forth, back and forth, back and forth while we are cleaning up for them and embracing them and so forth. And at about three quarters of the way, the boy is killed, is shot by the Americans who have taken over. Had he, had he not stayed up in the room with her so long, he would have retreated with his army back into Germany. But he came out then too late and got shot. But then the final scene between them is the scene they first met. Uh, it's a, it's an extraordinary play. It sounds it, and the things you do yeah. for love, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, I've done a lot of showcases over the years, How and I've you... worked with this with this director before and liked him a lot. So, you know. And and how do you? I mean, how do you know if uh, it, something that is presented to you is is going to be good uh, or you know good enough in your mind to give your time and energy? Well, you read it and you like it, or you read it and you don't. <laughs> so you just trust your instinct, and that's that. Yeah, yeah. You can't you can't try to analyze it because you never know what's going to happen with a piece in production. So you either respond to it or you don't. Yeah, and I mean, you are a director as well as an actor, so you have a yeah. couple of different ways of of processing. I yeah. Well, in this, well, you read it as an actor or you read it as a director. Oh, there's two different ways you would you would approach it. Well, they they sort of overlap. I mean, I mean, say you read it as an actor, you can have problems with the play, but you like the part a lot or something like that. I understand. And, yeah, and you're you're also uh, I I believe uh, also, uh, scheduled to be in a production in the fall, right? Another one. Well, no, there's this play I was in that. Uh, that was locked down three nights two years ago now be, before it's called the minutes by Tracy Letts. Well, I guess I was thinking about, uh, um, yeah, between, uh, between Riverside and crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, that I'm directing. I directed that before. And, and that's, and com- is, is it's that going to be with the same cast and the same, everything we had before and, the same and- designers. Was that was that uh, put on hiatus because of the pandemic? Yeah, well, I mean, 
Not exactly. Um, they, it was done at two theaters from a year before. It was done at the Atlantic Theater, and then it was a big hit there. And so then it moved to um, to to that theater called Second Stage, to so the Off-Broadway Second Stage, which is around the corner from the On-Broadway Second Stage. But the, the artistic director of Second Stage named Carol, Carol Rothman, she decided she wanted to put it in her Broadway theater. So... Um, it's it's planned to go into rehearsal on November first, and as I say, we have the same cast, and we have the same um, designers and everything. That's great, and and that's um, uh, written by Stephen Adley Gierges. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, the directing. Uh, I, I've looked at uh, some of I've never seen a play that you directed, but I've read a lot of uh, reviews and you're a great director. Well, sometimes as they, the, the old, old native American chief said in the movie, little big man years ago, years in the sixties, sometimes the magic works and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah. I remember yeah, that line. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we we were uh, also myself and uh, my associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavis, who I know you've had a few really good conversations with. That's how you we we were lucky enough to get you on our program. We were yeah. looking at all the folks you've worked with over the years. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, one that came to mind. Um, I guess you're you're a relatively uh, younger man um, back for a movie called Catch Twenty Two with Orson Welles. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That that I I was twenty nine when I was in that. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, I I, I didn't direct that. Obviously, no. I, I, I was. I all my scenes were with Orson Welles, and all his scenes are with me. So he agreed to come on the set for two weeks. So and that's it. And so we, we shot in those two weeks every, every scene that Orson and I were in. Yeah. What was that like? He was impossible. He was totally, he was charming as he could be. And his performance was marvelous. But he tried to take the scenes over from Mike Nichols, who was directing it. And Orson had a very off-center sense of comedy that didn't really fit what the script was doing or what. Um, so Orson kind of slightly wrecked the scenes that, that, that we were in, which were in some ways the centerpiece of the humor of the screenplay and um so he was he was on the other hand he was he's such an enchanting fellow and and he and but and the, and that was a very anticipated movie because it was mike nichols directing catch 22 which of course was a major major novel great in novel. The 60s yeah. yeah and um so um so the press all came down to interview everybody during those two weeks. I mean, the press, we, we were down the Baja Peninsula in Mexico. And, and, um, uh, and the, um, um, so I made all these quasi snide remarks about Orson <laughs> to the press. Then I went back to, to New York, and I remember I had a headache for about two or three weeks after I went back to New York. A headache for two or three weeks? Yeah, well, maybe a week. 
the, the tension and the stress of making it was so great with or with the shenanigans Orson was pulling. And the um and and then I went that's when they had all the revival houses in film in New York. And so I went and saw Orson Welles, uh, the Orson Welles um, movies I hadn't seen. I'd seen like everybody else. I'd seen Susan Cain. And the, and the rap on him was that he did Susan Cain, but he never did anything anywhere near that good before. So I went to see these some of these movies, and I realized, my God, he made some brilliant movies after Susan Cain. And I was sort of ashamed of all the snide remarks I'd made in the press. So years and years later, 25 years later, when I was asked by a friend of mine, Judith Bergenwald, to write a play about Orson Welles and Lawrence Olivier when they worked together once, I decided to write that play to make it up to Orson. This was, of course, long after he had died. But I felt so guilty that I'd if I'd seen all those movies before we'd made Catch-22, I would have had a much higher tolerance for him. And the play you're talking... And, and he... What? I'm the, sorry. The, the, it was Orson Shadow? Called, yeah. yeah, yeah, Orson Shadow. And, and um, uh, which a lot of good things came out of for me. First of all, the director was, the director was David Cromer, who I'd never met or heard of before, and he... He did. He did direct what I think is the definitive production of that play. But it ran for a long time in New York. So after that, it was done all over the country for a while. And when that happens, they—if you're the playwright—they fly you out to see them. And I saw a lot of good productions of it, but the original Chroma one was the definitive one, I think. And so. What, and, what, but I, but I, but I, the reason I accepted the idea to write it in the first place from Judith Bergenwald, who wanted her husband, husband Rene, to play Olivier, um, was that um, I felt I, I needed to write an homage to Orson Welles because I'd made all those snide remarks about him. <laughs> guilt. In guilt. Yeah, the play was written out of guilt. And, and, and then who, it, became, it became the biggest hit that I had yet had in New York as a playwright. It's not the one that the play I wrote that is still the most constantly produced is one called Uncle Bob. But for a while, Orson's Shadow was done all over the country. And who is in Orson's Shadow? Who are the characters? No, I mean, who there's I get the impression that someone is in Orson's Shadow who. So, who is in Orson's shadow? Who, who are the characters or who are the actors? No, neither. I mean, like if if I'm standing in someone's shadow, whose shadow oh, am I oh. standing in? Um, Orson's. And so everybody's in Orson's shadow. Orson casts Orson's casts a shadow on everyone that he gets involved with, even Lawrence Olivier in the play. See, here's what, what Judith O'Bergenois' idea, which was totally brilliant, was in 1960, Orson Welles directed Lawrence Olivier, you know, in London, in the Ionesco play called Rhinoceros. And by the time the play opened, Orson was no longer directing it. That was the entire idea that Judith gave me. But of course, there's a lot in that idea. And... um 
So let's see now. So the carrot. So then I, I began to research, and then also books about them began to fall in my lap during that time. Just, just tangentially, but I mean coincidentally, but karmically almost. Mm-hmm. And and um, I and I began to read up on it, and I and I realized that that falling out they had exactly happened at the same time that Olivier was breaking up with Vivian Lee and going with Joan Plowright. Mm-hmm. So I put those two women in the play too, Vivian Lee and Joan Plowright. And then a, a young guy who's a stage manager. So it was a cast of five. And it took me three years to get a draft of the play. And then I'm a member of this company in Chicago called the Steppenwolf. Mm-hmm. And they had done Uncle Bob, which had gone really well there for them. And so um, I, um, and so I got a call from the literary manager saying, "We hear you've written a new play." And I was I was really struggling with Ellis and Shadow. And I said, um, "Oh yeah, but it's it, it's not it's not as good as Uncle Bar." I mean, she said, "Well, why don't you send it to me?" I said, "Well, okay, but it's just." Not. She says, and I quote, just about. Word to mer- word. Do you have Id- an idea of the amount of crap I read each week as the literary <laughs> manager of this theater? Just send me your play. <laughs> so I sent it to her. And to her, this was in May or June, and to her astonishment, she said, "We go into rehearsal in December wow. for our small theater." I said, "Well, it needs work." She said, "So work on it, but it's really good." So then the artistic director at that theater at that time was Martha Levy, who was a you know great artistic director. And she called me up and she said, I have an idea of a director for your play. His name is David Cromer. Can I show him the play? I said, just show it to him. I, I don't have any ideas for who to direct it. So she called me back and said, he likes it. So you call him up, here's his number. And you talk to him and see if you like it. Well, five minutes into the conversation with Cromer, who I'd never met, I thought, this is the guy. And um, um, so I worked some more on the script, and uh, we went into production there six months in their small theater. And it was this big, 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 big hit. So I decided, um, I, and, 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 and it was reviewed by Ben Brantley, who happened to be in Chicago, who gave it an excellent review. Oh, big time critic. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, all these New York producers wanted it, but they wouldn't accept Cromer. As the director. And I said, well, yeah. I said, they said, who's David Cromer? I said, he's the guy who made the play work. And it happened that while it was playing in Chicago, my friend, the actress, some. Um, uh, Cherry Jones was playing in a play in Chicago that was on, in a pre- on its way to New York. And she and I would have breakfast and she said, don't. Okay. She hadn't even seen the play, but she'd read the reviews both in Chicago and New York. And she said, don't let them change it to come to New York. Do you want this, David Cromer? I said, I yeah. He's, he's, his work on it is brilliant actually and uh she said well then you just hold the fort and you don't let 
anywhere else come near it. And so um, that went on for five years. No producer would accept Chroma. Wow, five years. Yeah. Well, actually four, because around the fourth year, Chroma emailed me and said, this is getting officially embarrassing. Please just give it to somebody else. I said, no, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to risk it. And finally, Tracy Letts, you know, mm-hmm. I went to see a play of his at the Barrow Street Theater, the play, the play about the bug, you know, the play called, called Bug. Mm-hmm. And the guy who had a lease on that theater came out, the producer, Scott Murphy, when I was picking up my tickets, and he said, Tracy tells me you have a play. I said, yeah. He said, can I read it? So I said, sure. And he said, okay, we we could do this. Now, um, are you serious about this Cromer thing? I said, let's put it this way. If you don't hire him to direct this play, I will sulk. Now, do you really want that? <laughs> he said, oh, that scares the shit out of me. So he went out and Cromer put together a reading of the play out in Chicago with pretty much the whole original cast. And um, so Scott came back and said, okay, we go into rehearsal in a couple of months, you're on. And, and um, the only actor who couldn't, they, one of the characters in the play is Kenneth Tynan, who was the English, you know, theater critic. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, the actor playing that couldn't come to New York with it. So Tracy Letts himself took over the role. Wow. Which didn't do us any harm because Tracy, is, he was probably sitting on stage. He's a rock star. Yeah. Yep. And I think it's the first time the critics had ever seen a critic played by and like a rock star. And that didn't hurt us at all. <laughs> Excellent. And so it ran for almost a year. That's a good run. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then it... it um, and then because it ran almost a year, it then played all. But there was a point that Brantley made that was exactly right, I thought. It would never work with names in it. You'd be, even if they were brilliant names who were right for the part, you'd be watching Kevin Klein play Lawrence Olivier. If it's an actor you don't know, and you do it in a small enough theater, which is where it should be done, you should... Um, you you feel like you're actually watching. You're in a room with Lawrence Olivier, right? Or you're in a room with Orson Welles, right? So, um, and that was a real perception perception in Brandley's, I thought. And and um, so, it's whenever it, it has never been done with a name in it. And there were people who wanted to move it to Broadway and to didn't to put stars in it, but I thought no, no, Brantley is totally right. That could make it a whole other experience. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, it's too many names. It's hard to to then see the character as Olivier or, or yeah, uh, yeah. The, I mean, the the charm of the play for people it does charm is that you feel you're in a room with those people. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because you don't know the actors, right? Makes total sense. Yeah, it it sounds like this play means a lot to you. And again, 
all the folks that you've worked with and come across mm-hmm. over, over the years. I mean, you've been doing this for how many years? How many decades now? Like six, I, seven? I began uh, six, uh, sixty years. I began working professionally in the theater almost exactly sixty years ago to the day. Congratulations! You're making a living being an artist. Yeah, that's amazing. And then right? that, and then that. And then in the early years, I studied with Uta Hagen and Herbert Berghoff at um, Herbert Berghoff's at HB Studio. And um, so then after a while, after I've been a student there on and off for several years, um, Herbert asked me to start to teach there. So I started teaching there 50 years ago, or a little over 50 years ago. Wow. Wow. And I've taught there almost every year. There for, for a few years after our daughter was born, I didn't teach. But the but the um, but other than those four or five years, I've taught there every year since since nineteen sixty nine. And I bet and, you that serves that serves what you do when you're in the theater in many ways. Well, what it does is you know this business, to put it mildly, has its ups and downs. It's sometimes it's soaring ups and violent downs. And uh, you go through periods where you're in demand and then you go through periods when you're not in demand at all. <laughs> and and uh, uh, the um, and so um, teaching stabilizes everything. In terms and now, of, of course, e- the, economics, you mean? Well, well, well. It certainly does that, but also it just does. It keeps you on a more even keel emotionally. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you always have that. Yeah, I mean, I'm a professor. That's my day job, and uh, just connecting oh, in 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 in, um, in 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 Pennsylvania. There, yes, yeah, I'm a professor here in, in Pennsylvania, and uh, you know, connecting with people in in the classroom. Mm-hmm. is a, one of the most wonderful things uh, yeah. I've, I've, I've experienced. And it's new all the yeah. time. Exactly. And and now, of course, with HB for two years now, we've been doing it on Zoom. Not as good, right? But still. I, I To my great surprise, I loved it. I, who, I, who would have thought a scene study class would work on Zoom? But I find that it does somehow. <laughs> you can still create community on Zoom. Yeah, 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 yeah. So are yeah, you? And the, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I was just going to ramble a little bit. Yeah. I was just going to so, ask: Are you thinking yeah. about doing, uh, putting together a book, maybe to talk about acting to give people uh, some? People keep wanting me to write like, like a memoir. That would involve talking about acting, but it would also, I mean, there are a lot of really good books about acting <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, the, um, um, so, uh, because my other major acting teacher was this guy named Robert Lewis, mm-hmm. known to his friends and many friends as Bobby Lewis. Who, who was a big Broadway director and an original member of the Actors Studio and all of that. And in 1962-63, for eight months, I was at a thing called the Lincoln Center Training Program. The, um, the company at Lincoln Center was going to open the following fall. 
So they auditioned a lot of people and picked 30 of us. And we were told at the beginning of the eight months, eight months, uh, five days a week for eight months, that half of us would be picked for the company and half would not. So it was like an eight month audition. But I think I had the best time of any of them because I didn't really care whether I got into the company or not. And and I I just I thought I'm getting all this extraordinary free training, not only the acting classes with Bobby, but the movement classes with the great um choreographer of the day, Anna Sokolov. Mm-hmm. People and people on that level and the speech and so forth. And um so I just I didn't really it, as it happened I did get in the company, but they had very small parts for me, but I thought the first show is going to be a new play by Arthur Miller, directed by Ilya Kazan. So, oh, wow! After which turned out to be After the Fall, which I, which I, I was very excited with the idea of being in the rehearsal room for that. But then, just when I was about to start, I got asked to audition for the musical that became Fiddler on the Roof. Yep. So I took that instead, and uh, you excelled, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, well, that was so. Uh, that was the second show I did with Jerome Robbins, and and the le- the legends of Fiddler are all true. It got in real trouble out of town because of anti-Semitism. Well, we got, or no, no, no. Um, to entertain yourself, go and it would be in either July or August, nineteen sixty-four. Read the. Um, the Variety Review in Detroit of Fiddler on the Roof. It's, it's available. People go online and find okay. it. It's a catastrophic. And Hal Prince was the producer. And um, he told me just a few years ago that when that, he had raised almost all the money, he thought it's a good show. Once we open Detroit, I'll raise the rest of the money. He thought he couldn't raise any more money. After that variety review came out, we nearly closed in Detroit. So it was panned by variety. Oh, hideous. hideous. I mean, not, panned is the weakest, is too weak a word. It was savaged. Oh, man. It, it, and and um, among the insults of the review was it was comparatively brief. Because when variety would would review out of town a big a big Broadway musical that was on the, they would write for columns about how to fix it and how to do this and take it scene by scene. And then, but this was just a few paragraphs. long. It was like, it's hopeless. Forget it. Didn't even give it the time. Yeah. 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 And, and um, the only people, we, people, the only reason anyone would come to see is to see zero Mostel. Mm-hmm. All the other actors are bad. And alas, they name names. Um, the, script is bad the score is bad the robin the robin's choreography is bad here here we enter the realm of pathology you know and everybody was crying in the dressing room and all that we because because you rehearsed during the day when you're on the road and people were sobbing and i and i and i went back to my room in the hotel across the street for the dinner break and my agent called from new york this wonderful woman named deborah coleman and she said, I called her back. She said, dear, 
I hear, have you heard about the Variety Review? I said, I haven't heard of anything else <laughs> all day. She said, um, yeah, I hear they're going to fire Jerry Robbins. And I said, well, now, who do you go to if you fire Jerry Robbins? <laughs> right. He's the one who's always called in when the show is in trouble. Who are you? This is ludicrous. Yeah, he's the fixer. When, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So then we did the show that night, and it was. And then he, um, there was a bar across the street, and every all the cast was in the back of the bar in the lit area, negotiating who was going to sleep with who that night, because. Um, Nothing is more of an aphrodisiac than being in a musical in trouble out of town. <laughs> <laughs> and and the uh, and then um, but in the front at the bar all by himself was Jerome Robbins, and because I'd already done another play with him, somehow got the nerve. I've told this story a lot, but I I got up the nerve to say to him, "What are you going to do, Jerry?" And he said, ten things a day." That's what he did. It was the ultimate example of God is in the details. Exactly. He, he just worked on details all day, primarily in the scenes. And, and at some not quite identifiable point, the show was radiant. But I tell you, it was all details. So was the was the variety uh, review accurate then? And it did indeed need no, to be. No, it, it was nowhere near as bad as variety. So it never was as bad as that. I mean, but but in a way, the variety review was useful and it just got everybody hunkered down, you know? That's a that's a great story. And it's a great lesson, you know? And I, yeah, yeah. And when I teach directing, which isn't very often because I don't quite know how to teach it, but I start with that story, 10 things a day. 10 things a day. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Austin, we're, we're almost out of time uh, with this conversation. I mean, I could talk with you for hours. I love it, but I have to fit it into a certain amount of yada, yada, yada production, you know? Oh, oh wow. Um, so, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't so, need to hog. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Not at all. This is a pleasure. Yeah. I just want to give you an opportunity, maybe, I mean... I think where we're at now at this point in the conversation is 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 real. And, you know, there are a lot of people, I'm sure, that are going to be listening who are artists, uh, who are, are theater people. Uh, what what could you say to them about, you know, the 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 inevitable ups and downs uh, that they're going to face and the egos that they have to deal with their own included? Just stick with it if you can. There, there are, in cliches like it's always darkest before the dawn, but sometimes it's dark for two or three years before the dawn. <laughs> and then, and then something happens that is literally kind of a fluke, and then things start to pull together again. Yeah, I love it. It's uh, honestly, sir, it's a, it's an honor to talk with you, and I thank you for taking you the time too, out. Sir. My pleasure. And uh, I hope to talk with you again in the not-too-distant future. Go break a leg with everything. 
Thank you so much, and the same to you. And I'm always happy to talk to you whenever, okay? Yes, thank you. I appreciate it. Okay, great. Bye, Austin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Bye-bye. Back in 2004, I attended the Williamstown Theater Festival at Williams College in western Massachusetts for the first time. The play was Noel Coward's Design for Living, a frothy comedy about a bohemian menage a trois composed of Marissa Tomei, Campbell Scott, and Stephen Weber. Seated in front of me, hacking and wheezing from a summer cold, was the Wall Street Journal theater critic Terry Teachout. I recognized both his face and his cold from his blog about last night. I was a regular reader. I introduced myself, and we had a brief and pleasant chat, as many theatergoers do, pre- and post-performance. It was the first of several encounters with Terry, who died in January at the age of 65. I met him before or after the previews we both happened to attend outside the St. James Theatre after a performance of Sideshow, a musical about Daisy and Violet Hilton, conjoined twins and vaudevillians in the 20s and 30s. His wife, Hillary, beamed by his side as Terry, ever the professional, hid his judgment of the musical from me since the show hadn't opened. After Plenty, a political drama by David Hare 
with stunning performances by Rachel Weisz, Corey Stoll, and Byron Jennings. In the lobby of the Marquee Theater, before a preview of the musical version of Tootsie, with music and lyrics by David Yazbek. I'd see Terry, share a few words, and then wait to read his comments about the shows on his blog. The first essay I read by Terry was on Nancy Lamott, a wonderful cabaret singer who died at 43 in 1995. A colleague at work suggested I read the essay, and it made me both a Nancy Lamott and Terry Teachout fan. As I discovered, his range as a writer was impressively wide, and his interests, as critic and enthusiast, were varied and omnivorous. In addition to his weekly theater reviews, he wrote biographies of H.L. Mencken, George Balanchine, Louis Armstrong, and Duke Ellington. Essays on dance, art, movies and literature, opera librettos, and plays. A one-man show about Armstrong called Satchmo at the Waldorf, and a two-hander about Tennessee Williams and William Inge titled Billy and Me. As if that weren't enough, he began another career as a stage director. Terry's blog recorded his musings, his travels, his reading, his tart and funny appraisals, his ventures to regional theaters throughout the country. He was a firm believer that good and great theater existed outside of New York City. His memories of growing up in a small Midwestern town and his busy life in a cosmopolitan city. At middle age, he met and fell in love with Hillary, who suffered from pulmonary hypertension and died after a double lung transplant in 2020. In June of this year, he met, via Twitter, another woman, a fellow fan of classic movies and musicals, and was fortunate enough to fall in love again. Terry often quoted Balanchine, master choreographer and co-founder of the New York City Ballet. Why are you stingy with yourselves? Why are you holding back? What are you saving for? Another time? There are no other times. There is only now. Right now. Terry followed his advice, loved his work, lived the life he wanted to live, always learning, always evolving, never holding back. One of his favorite artists was, of course, Stephen Sondheim, and one of his favorite Sondheim songs was Finishing the Hat from Sunday in the Park with George. It's about artistic creation, about losing yourself and finding yourself in the act of making. Terry finished many hats in the time allotted to him. He had many more to make. More posts, more reviews, more plays, more librettos, more essays, more... We should, however, be glad for the ones he left us. Skylark Have you anything to say to me? Can you tell me where my love may be? Is there a meadow in the mist Where he is waiting to be kissed? Oh, Skylark, have you seen a valley green with spring? 
can go a journey over the shadows and the rain to a blossom covered lane and in your lonely flight haven't you heard the music in the night wonderful music faint as a will wisp crazy as a loon sad as a gypsy serenading the moon skylark i don't know if you can find these things but my heart is riding on your wings so if you see them anywhere won't you lead me Fluttering about. Ice hanging from the white birch tree and pine is winter wonderland sublime. The bird bath, a light peach colored orange, should have been covered. It filled and froze and cracked in half, the saucer did, and fell straight down to the cold ground. Something we will need to repair or replace in the spring. Right now, I am listening for the neighborhood birds to sing, fluttering about, doing their wondrous avian thing. Says I ought to know. The kid says she's made arrangements for me in the sand. The kid says she wants me with a down in I'd like her where she is She says it's an opportunity That I don't want to miss Candy says just made her For me in the sand Candy says she wants me With a down and 
she wants me with a down in Candyland. Episode 458 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Austin Pendleton. I'd like to thank our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavise, and also... Terry Teachout, and these musical artists, Thelonious Monk, Prince Buster, Austin Pendleton and Milton Green, John Randolph Marr, Nancy Lamont, Morphine, Branford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard too. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, Let's give it a go and try to do our best with this time. Take care. <laughs>